with the power of the gospel in our city, our world. Um, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning <clears throat> humbled by your grace and your faithfulness to us. And I pray that you would remind us of how awesome you are. God, we need you. We need you to open up our ears, soften our hearts, that we may be able to not only hear your word, but to live it out. God, we need you to worship you. And we confess that we can do nothing on our own. Would you be with me as well, that I would be careful and clear in preaching your word, and that you would give me the words to say. We give you all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. I wanted to start off this morning with a question. What is one of the greatest sins that we regularly commit but don't take very seriously? It's a weird question, right? We all know and agree that as Christians, every sin should be taken seriously. Every single sin is what Jesus died for, no matter how big or small. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. But the fact of the matter is there are sins in, in our lives that we commit regularly that for whatever reason we think are okay. We give them a pass. Because as long as we stay away from the big ones, we are okay. We tend to convince ourselves that the sins we deem as not that important is the same as how God feels about them. But we know that that is not true at all. Here are some that might have made your list as unimportant sins. I just came up with these. First one maybe is impatience. Right? We are all impatient at one point or another, yet when's the last time you called someone out because they were impatient? Gluttony, uh, this hurts home to me a little bit. We never confront someone who's being gluttonous. Envy, feeling discontent or resentful for someone else's possessions. It could be a house, a car, a business, a relationship, etc. Laziness just pretty self-explanatory. There are many more, and this list can go pretty, pretty much on and on. But can I give you one more? I think one of the greatest sins we commit in our lives that we seem generally okay with is the sin of apathy. An apathetic faith or an apathetic life for the Lord is one of the greatest sins we can commit And yet, we sit by, not really too concerned about where we're at or how we're going to get out of it. But we're okay with it. Why? Well, because everyone goes through it, right? Everyone is apathetic at some point, so it's all good. I'm not alone, and I'll get get out of it eventually. The question I have is, what if you don't? What if your apathy or your lack of interest, enthusiasm, motivation, or concern for your faith in Christ doesn't lift? What if your apathy, you're in your apathy for two weeks, two months, two years, two decades? What then? 
as a Christian living in Southern California with pretty much everything that we need, I truly believe apathy is one of the greatest sins we can commit that we don't take very seriously. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage that deals with justice. Because it is my assumption that there are some people in this room right now or watching via live stream that may be going through apathy. And if that's you, first, I'd like to say that I am glad that you're here. If you're here and you find yourself not really caring anymore about your daily devotions, coming to church on time, serving, praying, not really caring about missions or outreach, or you're just numb to your daily walk with Christ, I just want to first remind you that you are loved. You are loved by your creator. And we will be reminded of that later in our time together. But as well, Jesus really cares about your apathy. He really cares about how you're feeling and what you're going through. And he wants to get you through it. Because it's serious to him. So much so that he actually addresses it head on. The church of Laodicea. If you guys can please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 3. To give you guys a brief summary on what's going on in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, through the Apostle John, writes to seven churches in the first century, and Laodicea is the last church that Jesus addresses which is our passage this morning. But what's interesting is that this church is one of the only churches out of the seven that Jesus has no encouragement, no word of praise or affirmation for them. The only thing he has for this church is rebuke due to their apathetic faith. You have to understand that some of the other churches were dealing with some very serious sins, like abandoning their first love, or holding on to false teaching. And yet, Jesus still commends them and encourages them for some of the good that they were doing. Some of the other churches were in some serious sin, and yet, when it came to Laodicea and their apathetic faith, Jesus had no commendation, no word of praise for them. That should tell us that Jesus takes apathy very seriously, and so should we. And Jesus starts by identifying himself as the ruler of God's creation, as the amen. Verse 14 says this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, I think um, one of the pastors went over this recently, but do you guys know what amen means? Right? I know we say it all the time at the end of our prayers, but do we actually know what it means? Amen conveys this idea of truth. And contra- uh, contrary to popular belief, it doesn't mean goodbye or the end. When we pray, we end by praying in Jesus' name, amen. And when we say that, we are, what we're really saying is, Jesus, we pray in your name, Because you are truth. Truly, Jesus, you are the only one. 
And whenever we yell amen when someone else is saying something truthful, we are confirming that what he or she says is truth. And so Jesus identifies himself in this way to let the church know, you guys, this is me. Jesus who is speaking these words to you, so listen. Church, listen to what I have to say right now. Because he is the faithful and true witness. And he is the beginning of God's creation, meaning he is that from which all creation begins. He is the preeminent one, the sovereign king who rules over all creation. He wasn't the first created, as Jehovah's Witnesses believe. He is the one in which everything begins. And Jesus immediately follows with a bold and quite frightening statement in verses 15 and 16. He says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus not only knows the works of the Laodiceans, but he wants them to know that he is extremely displeased with them, and he holds nothing back. Because their works are not hot or cold, but lukewarm or apathetic, he is going to spit them out of his mouth. But usually when we think about spiritual temperature, okay, we usually say that if you're hot, spiritually hot, you're on fire, right? You're on fire. You love the Lord. You're doing everything. Just as uh, I think some of us can remember the first time we became believers, you're on fire. You're evangelizing to your friends, your family. You're going to church, you're serving, you're doing everything. You're going on mission trips, you are on fire. And when we say that we are cold, we usually think of someone who's not really that passionate. Someone who's just going through the motions. Someone who is, again, not spiritually high, no passion. But I don't think Jesus is contrasting their spiritual health in this way. Let me explain. I think for us to get a clearer picture of what Jesus is saying here, we needed to understand historically what was going back, what was happening in Laodicea. If you look at a historical map, you would see that Laodicea was located 10 miles west of a city called Colossae and six miles south of a city called Herapolis. As well, Laodicea was located on top of a hill or a plateau a couple hundred uh, feet high. So they didn't have their own water supply. So to get water, they looked to their neighbors for help. And the closest cities that had their own water supply was Herapolis to the north and Colossae to the east. And you have to understand that this water from Herapolis was hot. It came from their famous natural hot springs. And these springs were so hot, in fact, that they gave off steam. And people would travel from afar to bathe in these hot springs for healing and restorative purposes. In a nearby Colossae, they were known for their cool mineral water, which flowed down from nearby mountains. This thirst-quenching, almost ice-cold, frigid water. So you either have piping hot water from Herapolis to the north, or cold, frigid water coming from Colossae. And they were both carried by aqueducts to Laodicea. And by the time the water would arrive, the cold water would mix with the hot water. And what resulted was this lukewarm, tepid water, which was neither hot or cold. So you see, I think that's, what, that's the distinction that Jesus is making here. 
He's saying Laodiceans, you aren't useful like the hot waters of Herapolis where people come, af- come from afar to use. And you're not cold and refreshing like the waters from Colossae. No, when I look at your life, when I look at your faith, you are lukewarm just like your water. You are useless to me. Because back, in the, back then, you couldn't really do anything with lukewarm water. I mean, who wants lukewarm water? Lukewarm water in those days wasn't used for anything. You couldn't cook with it, you couldn't drink it, and you definitely didn't want to bathe in it. For example, a lot of you had coffee this morning. I had my coffee, I had a nice coffee this morning, it was delicious. But I bet all of you would, all of you, when you guys drink your coffee, you either drink it piping hot or you drink it ice cold. I don't think any of you in here this is a guess. This is a wild guess. Ordered your coffee, or when you made it, when you made it from home, drank it lukewarm. Lukewarm coffee is terrible. It is useless. Just a few months ago, I went to a pretty fancy coffee shop uh, near the church office. I, we walked over there. Uh, Stephen and Pastor Jacob were with me, and um, uh, this spot is this. This place is usually really busy. There's always all the seats are usually filled because they're known for the really good coffee, and me being um, somewhat frugal, I didn't want to buy the 5 to $6 pour-over that they make fresh. I wanted to buy their $3.50 pre-made coffee that they get out of the dispenser. And let me tell you, this was the worst cup of coffee I'd ever had in my life. It was disgusting, not because the beans that they used were bad, but because it was literally slightly above room temperature. You could literally gulp it down. I didn't finish it, and I ended up throwing most of it away. And so Jesus here is saying the same thing. The Laodiceans' faith was useless to him. Their apathy, their lack of interest, desire, passion, and enthusiasm for the Lord had caused them to be useless. John Piper writes, Jesus' indictment against this against this church is that they were half-hearted in their relationship to him. They are not uninfluenced by the Lord, but neither do they go overboard nor get very excited about the creator at all. It would be safe to say that they probably pray at meals and pause for two or three minutes at bedtime, but they do not burn with a desire for more of God. They do not go hard after him in the secret place. They do not fling the door wide and welcome him into the innermost places of their emotions. But they keep him just outside the door and do their business with him coolly, lukewarmly through the mail slot. Just like the ancient but very unbiblical proverb, moderation in all things. And that's exactly what an apathetic Christian looks like. Someone who just goes through the motions of everyday life. As long as you go to church on most Sundays, manage your sins. Your heart doesn't break over your sins. You just try to manage to make less of them. Your relationship with the world isn't too worldly. You're not concerned with being on time at church on Sundays as long as you make it to at least the last song of worship. You give just enough tithes and offerings to make your conscience comfortable instead of seeking the Lord and how much you should give. 
your service at church is that of convenience rather than how God can use you and the gifts that he has given you to better encourage the body. Your idea of witnessing to your classmates, neighbors, and coworkers is that as long as they know you're a Christian, that's good enough. Don't offend anybody. Don't rock the boat. Just be safe. When it comes to missions, you're never really considering going to them. You may give a couple of dollars here and there, but God isn't calling you to go, right? You're a sender. You're not a goer. These are all signs, I believe, of a lukewarm Christian. But in verse 16, Jesus says that because of your lukewarmness, because of your apathy, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You see, back in those days when water was lukewarm, because of the natural elements inside the water, it had a nauseating effect on people who drank it. The lukewarm water was actually used to help in assisting in vomiting. And looking at our text in verse 16, this Greek word to spit is better translated to vomit or throw up. And looking at our text in verse 16, this Greek word again is to spit or to vomit. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Just like your lukewarm water that causes people to feel nauseous, Laodiceans, your lukewarm faith, your apathetic faith makes, you want to, makes me want to puke. You make me sick. You see, the key here is that there is a gap between who Christ is and their tepid, tepid lukewarm response to who he is. That's the major issue here. Who Christ is and their response to who he is. The question I have is, what was it about this church that caused them to be lukewarm and apathetic? What was the core, what was at the core of the Laodiceans' lukewarm faith? Because no one who is a faithful believer in Christ just wakes up and decides to be lukewarm and apathetic. No one just decides one day they're going to be apathetic. Oh, I'm just not going to try anymore. So how did the Laodiceans become lukewarm? And here's where I'm going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. What made this church have this lukewarm faith that Jesus talks about? Well, here it is in verse 17. It says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. At the core of the Laodiceans' lukewarm faith was their self-sufficient, self-reliant heart. You see, they didn't need Jesus in their everyday lives anymore. They didn't. They had become complacent in their faith, so much so that they were just going through the motions not needing God for anything. In other words, they were stagnant in their devotion and their service to God. There is no spiritual progress, no yearning to know God more, no passion or zeal. They had everything they needed. So why did they need God? And so Jesus tells them straight up that you are useless to me and that you are no benefit to me in my kingdom. Brothers and sisters, does that sound like you? 
Yes, you verbally affirm and believe that in the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again three days later. I think most, if not all of us in here, would verbally affirm that. But do you really need him? You see, to understand that, um, to, to have, you see, you have to understand that Laodicea, although they didn't have their own water supply, they had everything else in abundance. Because it was strategically located on a road in the middle of two major cities, it made Laodicea an important and wealthy city. For instance, they had their own banking system. And if you look at a bank, what are they usually filled with? Money. They had lots of money. They had so much money, in fact, that in 8060, after a major earthquake devastated much of their buildings, Laodicea paid for its own reconstruction. But what's even crazier is that they even rejected financial help from the Roman government. The Roman government wanted to help them, but they rejected it. And to commemorate such an awesome feat of rebuilding their own city with their own money, they printed their own coins in the late first century with a slogan on the coin that said, We did it ourselves. As well, Laodicea was famous for their soft black wool that they produced. This wool was made into clothes and woven into carpets and was used for many other items, all of which were valued all throughout the regions. The city was also an important center for ancient medicine. The medical school located in Laodicea was most famous for an eye ointment that it helped develop to improve eyesight, which was exported all over the world. But what's great and clever is that even with these three, three booming industries, money, wool, and medicine that sustain them physically and financially, Jesus says that they are still poor, blind, and naked. Revelation 3.18 says this, I counsel you then to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They thought they were well off because of their monetary wealth. But in fact, they were spiritually poor and needed gold that only God can give, refined by fire without any impurities. They thought they were dressed properly in their black wool clothes, but in reality, they were shamefully naked in their sin and could not, can only be covered with white garments that Jesus provides through his death on the cross. They thought they were able to see better with an eye ointment that they produced. But the fact was, they were spiritually blind and could not see. The only way to see is to get the true, true ointment that works, which is from Christ alone. And I believe that the root of what Jesus addresses at the Laodicean church here is at the heart of our own problem today. That our self-sufficient, self-reliant hearts prohibit us from relying on God fully as we should. And this attitude leaves us in a complete decline in our spiritual walk with Christ. The fact that we could get anything and everything done ourselves gives no room for God to work in our lives. We live independently from God, just like the Laodicean church. 
But the scary thing is, we are okay with that. We live day in and day out, okay, with just living on our own. Some of us, it's not most of us in here are not rich, but we're comfortable. Who needs God when we're comfortable and can do everything ourselves? What's the point of pursuing God with full reliance when we can rely on our own abilities to get the job done? But the truth is, you can do nothing apart from the grace that God has given you right now. Your very next breath is given to you by the grace that the all-holy God gives you. He is the author of your life. He allows you to wake up in the morning. He allows you to earn money to put food on the table, to pay your rent, to have relationships. Every single thing that you possess is given to you by God alone. Not from your hard work, not from your effort. Even your hard work, God gives you the strength to do it. Church, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you relied on God while you were at work? When was the last time you asked God for strength while dealing with a difficult person or invited God to be with you as you drove through traffic on your way home from work? You see, when you don't really need God, there is no reason to pursue him. And when you don't pursue God, what's the point of even praying or reading your Bible? But have you realized how much your prayer life changes when you are desperate? I think we've all been there. We've all had a desperate time of our lives. A loved one being sick. A job that you need. A promotion. Of course, we pray at those times. But what about everyday life? I recently went through this. Um, as again, most of you know, we just had Lila about a month ago, and um, beautiful. Love her to death. Um, she only sleeps if you hold her, which is hard, but just what it is. And you can imagine the chaos with our two-and-a-half-year-old Ava. A lot of you guys have met her. She is uh, highly active, um, very verbal, and uh, she's just a full ball of energy. And so it is pretty chaotic at home. And again, we're doing, dealing with a lot of other things at home um, with our family. And so it's been rather difficult. Lack of sleep, lack of personal space. And for me personally, it's been uh, trying to balance a growing family with ministry. Especially moving into the new building, there's a lot on um, just everything that we have to do to get ready. Um, Cindy, my wife, holding the house down, not getting any real sleep. She's been... Um, trooper. She's been the foundation for us. Um, and we're just tired. We're preoccupied with our children. And we've been feeling a little bit of apathy, right? We're just busy, busy, constantly busy with our children. And so there's a little bit of apathy. But several weeks ago, uh, Ava, um, who deals with pretty bad eczema, she woke up with a fever. And there was a weird red band around um, at the top of her ankle, which we didn't know what it was. We didn't know if those two things were related. And so we decided just to keep an eye on it for the day and see what happens. Well, as the way day went on, her fever kept going in and out, and the redness on her legs continued to grow and tried to continue to move up her leg. So I rush her to the ER while Cindy is at home with Lila, and um, we go to the ER, and the doctor has no idea what it is. He says, it's not eczema, but we can't help you here. We don't know. 
and you guys need to go to Children's Hospital. So we get ambulance at 3 a.m. to the Children's Hospital in L.A. And um, as the day went on, as the night went on, or the morning came, her fever didn't break. And there were teams of doctors that reminded me of like an episode of House, if you guys have ever seen that. There's a team of doctors just looking at her, doing tests, uh, drawing blood from her, and all those things. They still didn't know what it was. And so it was just really difficult. And you can imagine, as a parent, one of the worst fears as a parent that you have is not being able to help your child, especially when they're ill. And so there's a lot of desperation on my end. Right? I was alone. Cindy was at home. We didn't know what was going on. None of the doctors knew. And so they gave her two different types of antibiotics. We were there for three, four days and nights. It was rough. But eventually the fever dropped and her leg started to um, lose the redness. And they later found out that it was a staph infection from her scratching her eczema with dirty fingers. But again, you can imagine the desperation of prayer as a parent continuously did not cease to pray the entire time. It was so difficult. But all we could do is rely on God for that. And I believe that that's kind of what the later scenes were missing. That desperation, that need for God. But church, how great is your need for God on a daily basis? How desperate are you for him to invade your life? Does your life and faith reflect who he is as almighty Lord and Savior? Or is the gospel, the gospel message that while we're still sinners, Christ died for you, and rose again three days later, is that old news to you? Have you graduated from that truth? And you're saying, God, what's next? When are you going to give me my next job, my next promotion? When are you going to give me my next child? The new house, the new car. A great gauge to see where you are in terms of God and your need for him. Because the more you need him, the more you'll seek him. The less you need God, the less you will seek him. It's that simple. If you are constantly in prayer, then I would think that you are in desperate need of God daily. If not, I would have to question your need for him. And going back to our text, I think this is the next verse, uh, this next verse sums up the entire message. This verse gives us a better understanding of why Jesus was so harsh in the previous verses. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus clears up any misunderstanding by his motives, by stating his love for the Laodicean church. What he's saying is this. Do you know why I was so critical of you and your works towards me? Do you know why I care so much that you are doing what you're doing and how your spiritual lives look like? It's because I love you. I love you enough to rebuke you and to discipline you, to get you back on the right track. I love you enough to care for you and to write you this letter. Therefore, remember what I have told you. Come back to the earnestness that you once had and repent. Turn away from the life that you're living now and come back to me. 
Or in other words, Jesus is telling his believers to stop walking through the motions of church and daily life and start being real. And we see in this next verse how serious Jesus is about getting the attention of his believers. He says this in verse 20. Here I am. Stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I think this passage is clear. Jesus wants, he desires us to be in intimate fellowship with him. This is what the opposite of lukewarmness looks like. So much so that he is the one who is knocking at the door of our hearts. Now, for those of you guys who um, have gone to a, let's say, a conference or an evangelistic uh, event, you may have heard this verse being preached to draw unbelievers to Christ. Right? Jesus says it's knocking at the door of your heart, and so let him in and receive salvation or something like that. But let me remind you that Jesus is talking to the church. He's talking to believers. He is knocking on the door of your hearts to the, uh, of those who are already in him. To eat with him. He is chasing and pursuing us. But what does it mean when he says that he's going to eat with us? That seems kind of odd. What does he mean by that? Well, to answer that question, let me pose you uh, with another question. What do you mean, what do you mean when you ask someone, hey, uh, that you haven't seen before, or seen for a while, maybe your friend, a family member, hey, let's grab lunch. Hey, let's grab a coffee. Let's grab dinner. What do you mean when you say that to somebody? When you say that to someone, you're not just saying, let's just eat, right? We're not going to talk. We're not going to look at each other. Let's just eat a meal together, right? And then we can go off on our separate ways. No. Instead, your greater desire, hopefully more than that of food itself, is to hang out with that person, that you want to talk to that person. You want to spend time with that person. You want to catch up with that person. You want to discuss about whatever it may be you want to discuss. You just want to catch up. You want to get to know them. And I believe Jesus here in verse 20 means the same exact thing. He wants to connect with you and be with you. To know him, to spend time with him and experience him in a greater and deeper way. Eating together in the biblical times had great significance. It was an expression of love and intimacy, closeness. It was a way for people to know and to be known. Jesus wants to eat with you. And he is pursuing you to do just that. That instead of just going through the motions of coming to church every Sunday, barely waking up, not having any motivation to come, he wants you to want him. Someone that's expecting to meet him. When you come through those doors on Sundays, do you expect to meet him? Do you want to meet him, to encounter him, to engage with him, to worship him? So someone, to, someone who is willing to spend time with him outside of just Sundays. Someone who is truly devoted to him in love and in service. He wants you to see Christianity not in doing stuff or earning more stuff but more as an intimate relationship with him. So I ask you, church, how is your relationship with him? 
Are you daily eating with him? Are you opening the door and letting him in? Or are you ignoring him while you live your own life, relying on your bank accounts and your 401ks, relying on things in your own power that you can do on your own? How is your personal relationship with Christ? For some of you, you only talk to him three times a day for about 15 seconds. Those times are called breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For others, the once passionate earnestness of knowing God more has become just a routine. You just go through the motions. Your prayer life is dull, done out of habit. You try to read the word here and there, but not because you want to, because you have to. If any of these things sound like you or maybe you're somewhere in between, I just want to take some time right now to confess. Let's repent and let's ask God to give us a heart of earnestness, of earnest desire to want to know him more. That we would be not content with where our relationship is with him, but that we would continue to strive with all of our might to know him more. I should remind you once again that he is holy. He sits on his throne. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on in your life, he will forever sit on his throne. Nothing will ever change that. And yet that same God is knocking on the door of your hearts as believers. He is literally chasing and pursuing after you, saying, look, I'm on my throne. Forget about all the things that I provided for you. Forget about all the money that I provided for you, all the comforts. Those things are just aside. I just want to eat with you. I just want to dine with you. I just want you to get to know me. And I want to get to know you. So I just want to take some time. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, let's just take some time. Verse 19 again says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Let's come before the Lord and say, God, I've made this not about you. I've made this about things that I do, things that I earn, my reputation. The first thing he calls us to do is to repent. So after we have some time, I just, we're just going to go through a time of communion. But I want to spend some time here. Look back on your past week, your past month, your past year. Does your life, does your faith reflect someone that's in desperate need of him? 
Are you just going through the motions? this time we're going to be taking a time of communion so if I can ask the ushers to come up but I want us to sit where you're at right now and can you just think about if there's a repenting to do just sit there is no first place prize for coming up and taking communion first you don't get an extra reward I want to sit and just take some time to think about again your life your faith in Christ Those guys who are having a hard time, I just want you to just be honest with them. God, I don't want you right now. I haven't wanted you for quite some time. Yes, I come to church on Sundays, but I'm good. If that's you, just be honest. Just be honest with them and just say, God, I just don't want you. I haven't wanted you for six months to a year. My passion, my zeal is gone. So when you are ready, And I wanted to encourage you to just take time where you're at. But when you're ready, let's take the elements. Let's bring them back to our seat. And uh, we will all take them together.